said, turn with me to Isaiah 53. There are three passages of Scripture that in a very unique way present to us the agony and the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two of them in the Old Testament, Matthew, or rather, Matthew's Bible. Matthew's not in the Old Testament. But uh, Psalm 22, and here in Isaiah 53, and the New Testament counterpart is found in Matthew chapter 27. All three of those passages give a very vivid description of what our Lord endured on the cross as He was bearing our sins, as Peter said, in His own body on the tree. I want to just pick out one verse of these, of these few here. And I want to, again, we're going to dissect it tonight. And that is verse 6, where the Bible says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This verse very nicely divides into four sections. And I'm going to take it in those sections that way. First of all, the first phrase is, All we like sheep have gone astray. There we have the waywardness of man. Then notice the phrase, We've turned everyone to his own way. There we have the willfulness of man. And then notice the wickedness of man in the latter part of the verse where the uh, writer says, speaks of the iniquity of us all. And then the third part of the verse, we have the culmination, the wonderful Savior that God has provided for man, the Lord hath laid on him. Notice then with me, first of all, the waywardness of man. All we like sheep have gone astray. Notice the word all that allows for no exceptions. You cannot say that means everybody else but me. No, it means everybody else, including you and including me. All of us have gone astray like sheep. Interesting, don't you find it that man, of course, was the human race, was the final act of God's creation. It was the it was the uh, the cherry on the Sunday. It was the Mount Everest of uh, of creation. With all of our intelligence, with all of our education, with all of our technology, with all the things we know how to do, is it not interesting that God says we're just like a bunch of stupid, blind, aimlessly lost, helpless sheep? God has a sense of humor, obviously. We do, and He does as well. Several years ago, I was reading, I wish I had flipped it out and kept the article. It was going back probably to about the 1850s. And there was a young lady from the East who had graduated from a well-known teacher's college, and she was well-cultured and well-educated and well-refined. And she wanted to go out to the Midwest, I don't know, was it Kansas or Nebraska, where they did a lot of sheep raising back then? Somewhere out in that area. And she wanted to teach in one of America's famous old one-room schoolhouses. I remember back in 1980, I actually had a chapel service in a one-room schoolhouse near just about 20 miles south of Omaha, Nebraska. So they still had some as late as the 1980s. By the way, those guys got a better education in eight years than guys get today in 12 years in these multi-million dollar high schools that don't know how to teach anything that they're supposed to be teaching. Anyway, she was in sheep country. And so she was trying to uh, to, to adapt to the culture. You know, when you go to an area that's different, you try to learn the culture and that's one of the things missionaries have to learn, and they have to try to learn it fairly quickly, or they'll never be 
They'll never be affected if they can't get in with the culture of the area. Not the sin of the culture, but the culture itself. Well, she was in sheep country, so one day she was teaching her class about, about math. And so they were dealing with the matter of subtraction. Remember the old workbooks used to have apples? And if you have if you have two apples and you eat one apple, how many apples are left, class? How many? You're slow in answering. Don't be bashful tonight. Alright? Well, this was higher math. And the question was, if you have ten apples and you eat one apple, how many apples are left? Class? Nine. Nine. Well, she was trying to not use apples because that was that was Washington State stuff. You know, she was in sheep country. So she so let me get this out. So she posed the question this way: If you have ten sheep in a pen and one gets out, how many are left? Now the answer is supposed to be nine, but that's not what she got. Little Johnny said none. Well, you know, none and nine could sound an awful lot alike, and she thought maybe she didn't understand, so she asked the question. He said, none. And so she went over and over the question, and he kept saying none, and finally she said, Johnny, you don't understand your subtraction tables, do you? He said, teacher, you don't know sheep. <laughs> so she tried. I know, you, you know how it goes, right? If you have a pen and wait for a ten sheep, and one finds a hole and gets out, sheep are followers. It won't be long before the other nine have found the same hole, and they're gone. Sheep are wanderers. Sheep just wander from one clump of grass to the next. They take no thought of tomorrow. Uh, they have no means of protecting themselves, although they have a host of them. <coughs> a host of enemies, including man. Can we hear lamb chops? And so, I mean, sheep can't even necessarily trust the shepherd, although they get to know the shepherd. And the sheep will just wander off, and, and, and don't, they don't care about the wolf that may be hiding behind the next pile of rocks to jump out and devour one of them. They live for the present. Is that not typical of mankind today? I mean, the society in America in 2018, folks, is a present living society. I don't mean they live in the present. I mean they live for the present. They don't worry about the future. They don't care about the past. It's what can I get for me now? So the Bible compares us as sheep having left the paths of God. We've all gone astray. That phrase gone astray means having left the paths of God, having struck out on our own, doing our own thing our own way, with no desire to be obedient to the Word of God. But then notice the second phrase, the willfulness of man, where the Bible says we have turned everyone to his own way. Do you ever wonder why there are so many religions in the world? And there are there are probably a thousand of them. Every once in a while, they, they, another one gets invented, like Joe's... Uh, the thing down in Guyana and the thing out there in Texas and, and all these kinds of things. They get little followers and they get little religion started. It's all it's usually said about one person who's using other people to get rich. Um, why are there so many religions in the world? You ever talk to somebody, you know, they say there's two things you shouldn't talk about, religion and politics. Of course, nobody ever talks about politics, especially the news media, Right? When's the last time you heard anything political on the news? 
Friday right before he came to church. So if they talk so much about politics, seems to be religion only get equal equal time. Amen. And so you're not supposed to talk about religion. So you, you go to share the gospel with somebody, and I've had this happen a number of times, and they'll come back with this response. Well, now, now you had your religion, and I have mine. Folks, listen, what I have is not a religion. Christianity, in the biblical sense, is not one of the world's major religions. It's not a religion at all. It is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we've turned everyone to his own way. That's why there's so many religions in the world. You have yours and I have mine. And yours is as good as mine and mine's as good as yours so I don't need what you have to offer. Have you ever heard anybody say we're all going to the same place we're just taking different roads we talked about that the other night. And we say that's false. Actually it's true. The people who say that are all going to the same place taking different roads it just isn't the place they think it is. All roads do not lead to heaven. All roads may lead to Rome over there, but all roads do not lead to heaven. Years ago, I had a meeting up in the Adirondack Mountains of New York, and uh, and the town was at the end of the road. The church was at the end of the road. I can't even remember the Thurman. I think it was the name of Thurman. And there's only one way to get into Thurman. I mean, if you come up this way, you go west and then go south. Or if you go this way, you go east and you go south. And the Folks, there's only one road into that church. There's no other way. If you go just about a quarter mile past the church, the road ends in the woods right by a big lake. That's much like heaven. There are not a, lift, there are not a lot of different roads and routes that you can take. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And he emphasized that again by saying, no man, it doesn't matter who you are, no man comes to the Father but by me. He's turned everyone to his own way. Is that not exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden? Again, I touched on this last night in our study in Romans 5. But Adam and Eve knew the Word of God, <clears throat> therefore they knew the will of God. One preacher put it this way, the Word of God <clears throat> constitutes the will of God, and the will of God never contradicts the Word of God. In other words, folks, the word, the, the will of God will never, God will never direct you to do something that is contrary to the clear teaching or principles of His Word. Right. Never. And I've heard of people who are doing something that's totally unbiblical. Well, the Lord let me. No, He didn't. Well, I'm going to go to this school. The school's a bad school. I'm going to go there because that's where God wants me to know. Folks, God doesn't lead people that way. God doesn't lead people into error. God doesn't lead people to do things that are wrong. God leads us to obey His Word. And so Adam and Eve, and I'll just touch on this again because not all of you were here. But Adam and Eve knew the Word of God, therefore they knew the will of God. The Word of God was... Help me out now. What did God say? Thou shalt not eat of that tree. That was the Word of God. Question, what was the will of God? Don't eat in that tree. But Eve saw it was pretty. It was tasty. It would give her wisdom beyond what she ever knew. And so she took, and, and, and Adam and Eve's eating of that. They said, we know what God said, but we don't care what God said. And listen, I've actually heard some people say, I don't care what God says. 
I remember this is a blow your mind. And, I, I'm, I'm, this is not a political statement, okay? This is just what happened in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter. And the, week, the Sunday before the national election, I was in a church in Central Illinois, and I happened to share with the chairman of the deacons, and I said, I was really excited. Isn't this a refreshing election? At least there, there's a clear choice. Sometimes you're Democrat and Republican, not much different. I mean, that time there was a real difference. And, I, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when you compare the two-party platforms and where the, the two parties stand, and compare it to the Bible, there's only one way you can vote. And I thought he said, well, that's right, brother. Instead, his blood pressure went up. His face got red. He stood back. I thought he was going to hit me. He said, don't bring the Bible into this. Folks, that's why our country's in the mess it's in. Because not only have we let the politicians kick the Bible out, we don't bring the Bible into our politics. Well, I have an election, a midterm election coming. Let me just say this. If you're not registered to vote, you better register. You have a, a responsibility as an American citizen. And you need to know what the issues are. And you need to know how the Bible addresses those issues. And you need to vote for the candidate that is closest to the Bible. He won't be perfect, believe me. But you need to vote for the one that stands closest to where the Bible stands on these major issues of our Bible. Adam and Eve said, well, we know what God said about we're going to do it anyway. And we all know the results of what happened. John 5.40, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Ye will not come to me, that you might have life. Now, they're the religious leaders. And Jesus is saying, guys, you're lost sinners. And the reason you are is not because I will not or cannot save you. I'm the one who is the giver of life. But you will not come to me. So that I might do it. Can I say this? Folks? Salvation on the human side is, is as much of the will as anything else. Whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life. Whosoever will may come. Uh, whosoever, uh, the Bible says, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. As many as received him, to them may I add regular, to them only gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe. If you receive, you will be saved. If you refuse, you will remain lost under the condemnation and the wrath of God. Notice number three, the wickedness of man. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The word iniquity there is a word that means perverseness, distortion, that which is abnormal. It is, it is almost more than just a disobedience. It, it, it is an arrogant disobedience. For example, it would not be the same thing as adultery. It would be the same thing as sodomy or homosexuality or, or the same sex, all this nonsense. That kind of a perversion. Now, folks, adultery is still sin. It's immorality. God condemns it. But at least it's a natural position between a man and a woman. The other is not. It's unnatural. It's against the very laws of nature. That's where this word crookedness or uh, uh, distortion, this word iniquity, comes into play. Jeremiah put it this way Jeremiah 17 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know? Now, grammatically, that little question at the end is what we call a rhetorical question. It doesn't need an answer. The answer is obvious. 
the human mind is not capable of understanding the wicked foul depths to which it is capable of stooping and wallowing in its absolute degeneracy and depravity. We looked at Titus chapter 1 last night, verses 15 and 16, and uh, that the being abominable, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient. And we noted last night that has more to do uh, with, the, uh, with the character of man rather than the actions of man. So we have the wickedness of man, and folks, it is, it is universal. But then notice we have the wonderful Savior that God has provided for man. And the Lord hath laid on him. You'll notice the word Lord is all caps. That is the word Jehovah, the self-existent one, the eternal one. As we refer to the Trinity, that would be referring to God the Father. The pronoun him is a reference to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is prophesied some 700 years before the fact, before it actually happened. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verses 4 and 5, Surely he, Christ, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he, Christ, was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Folks, this whole passage here deals with the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on behalf of a lost human race. And I become incensed and angry with people who say, well, who deny the the uh, uh, the intercessory work of Christ that he he died for for our sins. There are those uh, people today in the realm of religion and even uh, some televangelists who deny the uh, substitutionary work of Christ. I heard one preacher, he's, he's dead now, and I don't know this with the Lord. I won't mention his name, but he, he split more, probably more churches single-handedly than anybody I know, primarily through his cassette tapes all over the country. Number one, he denied the blood of Christ. He said the blood of Christ doesn't save anybody, never did, never will. He says Jesus didn't believe to death because he had so much vitamin K in the system, his blood immediately coagulated. I'm still waiting for a chapter and verse on that one. But he also made the statement, he said that nobody can die for anybody else. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 suggest otherwise. And we just have to look at our, our military and see that many have been the occasions where one died, laid down his life for another. My friend, to deny the substitutional work of Jesus Christ is to deny your own salvation. If He did not do it for you, you are not saved. It's very simple, great plan. The Lord hath laid on Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Other verses would include 1 Peter 2, 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. In Galatians chapter 3, where Paul talks about the one, the Lord Jesus, who hung on the tree for us. My friend, we need to understand that what the Lord Jesus suffered and endured on the cross 
He did for folks like you and me and the rest of the world. Spooner, Wisconsin is a lost town that needs the Lord. There are a few Christians here and there, a few churches that are relatively small. But folks, listen, uh, every place we go in the world is a place, is a mission field where people need to hear the gospel. Think with me for just a closing moment about our Lord's Calvary experience. Our Lord began His Calvary experience with a prayer. When He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was not just speaking of the Roman soldiers who had pierced His hands and feet. He was speaking about all of you, the Jewish people who had rejected Their sins were nailing Him to the cross, but so were yours and mine. Hours later, our Lord ended His Calvary experience with another prayer. As was all coming to a conclusion, He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Both prayers. But folks, right in the middle of the seven sayings from the cross, number four, is a spine-curdling cry of terror. God had clothed the area, how big an area we don't know, maybe just the area where the cross was, but it was enough that if God clothed the world in a thick blackness, the likes of which man has never seen before. And only those who die without Christ will ever experience in the future in outer darkness. But God sent that thick black darkness. People were frozen in their position. You couldn't see anything. You didn't know where it was safe to move. They just stood there. Why did God do that? Because for those three hours, the Lord Jesus Christ was having all the filth and the sewage and the garbage of sin-soaked humanity poured out and dumped upon Him. And it was so bad that God the Father had to turn His back on God the Son. Now listen, Jesus didn't stop being God for those three hours. The relationship was never broken, but the fellowship was. And from the midst of that three hours of darkness comes this spine curling cry. Either we either we love us about tonight. My God, not my Father. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? My friend, what the Lord Jesus suffered that moment, he did bury my sin in yours. Do you know Him as your personal Savior? If not, there's no better time and no better place than right here tonight to settle that matter between you and God. Let's pray together.